Hello and welcome back to Chasing Perfection, a UConn women's basketball podcast. UConn is through to the Sweet 16, their 29th Sweet 16 in a row. The next highest program or the next longest streak of any program is South Carolina with nine. It's quite a bit less than 29. (laughs) The Huskies beat Vermont very comfortably. And then they pulled away in the second half to take down Baylor to get there. They survived the first two rounds. I'd say more importantly, we so far have survived that 9 a.m. tip and a (laughs) post-midnight departure from Gamble Pavilion, even though we're feeling it today. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm definitely tired. (laughs) But it's it's that time of year. (laughs) It was just a nice little introduction to West Coast time for us, right? Yeah, I mean, oh, I'm I'm feeling it though. That's a late game. I don't enjoy that game. I don't know if anyone actually wanted that to be a 9 p.m. tip. No, I I don't really know who that benefited, other than maybe the TV network. Because yeah, agreed, it was rough. It was fine during the game, like the adrenaline keeps you going. But as soon as it ends, it's like, all right. <laughs> yeah, you're sitting, you're waiting. There's a lot of waiting after games. Oh, that you weren't in the locker room, but the locker room was so hot, so that does not help anything. <laughs> Anyways, UConn through to the Sweet 16. They'll play three seed Ohio State. And I don't want to get too far ahead of we'll talk about the rest of the bracket later, but it is quite funny that of all the chaos that has happened in some parts of the bracket. Yukon's region has almost completely gone to chalk, and the Greenville one region with South Carolina has almost done the same thing as well. Yeah, exactly. Both of those, all top four seeds, through to the Sweet 16. Nothing too crazy going on over there. Actually, I guess it's almost it's surprising that that happened in the Greenville one region, to be fair. I don't think many people thought Notre Dame would get there, but no, other that's than a- that... It's impressive considering since we last recorded, Olivia Miles is actually out for the year now. And Mississippi State looked like they were going to be tough to beat, which they were. But I guess there's a reason they were an 11 seed. Yep. (laughs) Before we get too much into the rest of the bracket, though, let's come back to UConn. They opened the tournament with a 95 to 52 win over Vermont. You know, for a Vermont defense that came in ranked seventh in the nation in points. I don't think there was ever a concern that UConn wasn't going to win or that they weren't going to scuffle, but to score 95 points and to do it with relative ease against a good defense, a team that was going to try and slow the game down, was going to try and keep it low scoring. That is a pretty good start to the tournament. And in those games, you can never... The the opponent factor is always going to be there, but when you look past the opponent just into the actual performances and the eye test, UConn passed it with pretty flying colors, especially down low. Yeah, I think that was a big thing. Going into that game, like you knew, like you said, that UConn was going to be able to win it, but looking at you know how they looked, and uh, we hadn't seen them in, in a game since the Big East tournament, so did they kind of pick up where they left off? in that, that tournament where they looked really good, and they certainly did. And as you said, it started down low. I mean, 28 points on 13 of 15 shooting for Leah Edwards. It's just ridiculous. 
And it wasn't just layups either. I mean, she very easily could have scored those all on layups, but there are a lot of perimeter jumpers. She knocked down three out of four. That's an area of her game that's come and gone throughout her career. We saw it a lot at the end of her freshman year. We didn't really see it at all at any point in her sophomore year. It's been here and there throughout her her junior year, but it was really working that game. And it's just a completely different offense when Ali is hitting that shot because defenses have to step out. It opens up more room for Dorky Uhas down low. And in the right matchup, Aliyah Edwards is capable of putting the ball on the floor and driving past a defender if they step out too far on that elbow jumper. So that's a really dangerous weapon for her. And I don't think it's going to be necessarily a staple of her game the rest of this season, but just to look ahead to next year, if that can be the best example I can think of is like KG, Kevin Garnett in the, in the NBA, he had such a knockdown mid range jumper. I'm sure there's a better women's example, but again, we got, we left Gample past midnight last night. So bear with me here, but if that can be a something that she hits even just two or three per game, that's a huge contribution to the entire offense. Yeah, exactly. And I think we, we've saw it, seen it some. I think she hit one or two of them against Baylor as well. So a little bit here, but then like if you look ahead to next year, yeah, for her to add that with consistency would be the, a good next step for like how does Leah Edwards become even better than she was this season. It was really interesting hearing Gino actually answer that question about what does it take for Aaliyah to take the next step? Because he said that she's still got room to grow. So what is that next level that she can get to? And he had two different ways for her. It was either you become the best thing in the country at one thing, whatever it is. And he, he didn't have the examples he used where you're the hardest worker or you know, you get your opponent to foul trouble every single game. Those are the two he threw out. There's plenty of others. Or you're so well-rounded that you don't have any weaknesses. You're not great at one thing, but you don't have any weaknesses. And I just never really thought of, you know, how does a player become great? And then you combine the two, and I think that's when you get the Stewies and the Diana Taurasi's and the Maya Moores of the world where... They are both the best in the country at one, two, you know, in Stewie's case, everything. <laughs> and you don't have any flaws in your game. So I don't necessarily think Aaliyah will be at that level. I think it takes a really, obviously, it takes a special player to do that if only three players in history have. But I think we saw this weekend in particular that she's already taken another step forward in this NCAA tournament. Definitely. And I think that's a, a huge sign for UConn as we're looking ahead to, you know, next weekend and there to go to the final four is they'd, they've needed her to be great all season and continuing that into March is, is really critical for them. This team goes as Aaliyah goes. We saw it in February when they had that dip, when they had all those close games, Aaliyah wasn't dominating like she is now. And the numbers necess- weren't necessarily that bad, but there's just a different feel to it where you know the other team is throwing everything they have at her and there's absolutely nothing that they can do to slow her down. Yeah, exactly. I think we saw that particularly with Vermont. There's, there was really obviously no one on the team that had any size to slow her down. But even against Baylor with the foul trouble, she still, when she was out there, they had no answer for her. 
Right. You have 19 points and you spend 16 minutes on the bench in that game. I mean, that's when you know that a player is coming into a different, a different, uh, when they're becoming a little different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think in particular, it had to be like demoralizing for Baylor yesterday where they're like, you know, UConn goes up like 15 and then they bring Edwards back in off the bench and just like add to it. Yeah, it's the first time it feels like we've really gotten to see that depth used in games that matter because Piggy's tournament, you lose Caroline one game, you lose Aubrey Griffin the other, and the middle game, yeah, that's one example, but Aaliyah goes into foul trouble, so Aubrey Griffin goes in and has one of her best games at UConn. The offense scuffles a little bit. Caroline comes in and starts hitting hitting shots, knocking in shots, when you go to the bench, these bench players can come in and then you can mix things around and give teams different looks. And then you can bring those players right off the bench. So if Dorka and Aaliyah are doing well and you can bring Aubrey in for Dorka, then you can bring Dorka in for Aaliyah. And all of a sudden you have a completely different front court with every single change that you make. So it's the first time all season. It is the first time all season we've seen it used in a game that was close against Baylor and the final score being 19 points is still funny to me because that was not a 19 point game up until the midway point of the third quarter, but it feels like it was that depth that kind of pushed them over the top because Baylor had a lot of answers, but it didn't have all of them. And that depth for UConn and that talent level and just the number of different options that could come in and just smaller contributions went a long way when it was from a lot of different people. Yeah. And I think you can look back to like a point probably not that long ago, like three or four weeks ago, where if you had a situation where Aaliyah was in that kind of foul trouble a couple minutes into the, the third quarter and then like Lou didn't have the biggest scoring night, which is fine. They didn't need it. But four weeks ago, like that probably would have sunk UConn in this game. Yeah, or at the very least, it would have been a much closer game. They wouldn't have been able to pull away at the end the way that they did because it was so quick. That's what really stood out to me is you're used to those type of runs, but it's a tie game midway through the third quarter. And then by the end of the third quarter, it's a 14-point game, and it's pretty much over entering the final corner quarter because you know that UConn's not giving it up, and they just keep building on it from there, even though five points isn't anything crazy. There were no comeback bids happening from Baylor in that game because of the way UConn played and just the way they were able to keep coming in waves and they just kept punching when they needed that little push to get them forward. Yeah, it's remarkable how fast it changed. I went back and watched the third quarter today because I was rather distracted by the Miami win that we'll talk about in a little bit during it live, but... It is. It was like Baylor made that comeback run at the start of the third quarter. And then there's just a handful of minutes there where like two things happened. Aubrey Griffin started getting her hand on every single loose ball. And then AZ Fudd knocked down a whole bunch of shots really quick. And all of a sudden, like the game just totally flipped. And I think obviously, I mean, that's part of what, you know, AZ Fudd can do. It's something we haven't seen in a while because she's been out and then it's taken some time for her to get her, her feet back under her. But the 
way that easy fight can change a game so quickly was very much on display last night. Yeah, it was the type of thing where she hits one shot and you're like, okay, good. She's she's starting to get back on track. And the second one goes in. And then on that third possession, you can just feel the crowd start rising and she gets the ball in her hands. And you know that the moment it touches her hands, that it's going to find its way into the basket one way or another, whether it's a shot, a pull-up jumper, or a drive to the basket. And then once she scored that third basket in a row, really started to give UConn some breathing room, that's when it felt like, okay, this game's over. I know there's plenty of time left. I know it's still single digits, but this game is over because of the way that AZ's playing right now. They're not going home. AZ Foot is yeah. simply not going to allow it. Yeah, exactly. That's that's kind of how it felt. It was like you were all of a sudden, it was like it was very close and it was, you could find a sense like, oh, especially when Aliyah went out with that fourth foul, you're like, are they going to be in trouble? And then Easy Foot very quickly made it like, yep, nope, they're fine. Yeah, and Aubrey Griffin, I don't think you can say enough about her performance yeah. either because clearly not 100% with the back. I think there was one, when she subbed out at the end of that third quarter, she kind of ran up the court funky and Gino immediately turned to the bench and pulled her out. So she admitted after the game that she wasn't a hundred percent that it's still bothering her, but just that the adrenaline pushed her through it. Gino had an all timer quote saying that Aubrey seemed like she finished third in the tour de France by how much she was on the stationary bike during that game. But it was like her hands were a magnet to the ball. And when Aubrey's at her best, that's what happens and I, it's hard to explain how because it's not like, yeah, she was really attacking the basket and going after those loose balls. But at a certain point, the ball seemed to be finding her more than she was finding the ball. I mean, every time the ball would get knocked out of a Yukon hand or it would end up free on the floor, it would go straight to Aubrey no matter where she was. So it was the type of game-breaking performance that we'd seen in bits and pieces from Aubrey, but as good as she's been this year, we haven't necessarily seen her just totally take over a game like that, but we saw it against Tennessee at her freshman year or Seton Hall. I liked what Gino said post-game, how Aubrey had four points and she completely dominated the game. That's really what it felt like, especially in that third quarter. Yeah, I thought Nikki Collin also had a great quote about how she like looked like Superman skying in from the perimeter to get those rebounds. And yeah, she was just quite literally everywhere for, I don't know, probably like, it was probably a six minute span there in like the third quarter. It wasn't a ton of time, but it was enough to just completely change the game. I went back through the play by play and every time she got her hand on the ball, whether it was a defensive play, like a rebound, a steal, a block or on the offensive end. So an offensive rebound, an assist, obviously, or points the ball went in the basket, except for once she got an offensive rebound one time. And I think missed her own shot and it didn't end up as a basket, but she only had four points herself. But when all but one of those plays leads directly to points, that's where you can directly connect the impact that she made to the lead. And Another number that I liked was she was tied for the team lead with plus 19. So the team outscored Baylor by 19 when she was on the floor. Nika Mule was also plus 19, but she played the entire game. So that's just going to be the final margin of victory, obviously. Aubrey was on the floor for just 19 minutes in this game. 
and yet she's still not 19 minutes. Give me a second. I have the number. I think it is 19 minutes. I think you're it right. is 19 minutes. Yep. Yes. 19 minutes. I started thinking there were too many 19s and that must be wrong, <laughs> but only 19 minutes. And she did that. So I think that really highlights the impact that she had. Yeah, definitely. I think she was just incredible. And in that time that she was on the floor to, I mean, I think it's pretty easy to point to like her and AZ being the, the two things that absolutely changed the tra- trajectory of the game. Yeah, it's easy, but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of AZ, how do you feel about her now that we've seen two more games? The shot still isn't there, but 22 points were a the most since she's had 24 against Iowa way back at PK85. So... 3 of 12 from 3, but still 22 points, and she doesn't look like she's coming off an injury either. So what did you think of her after two more games? Yeah, I think the shots will fall eventually, and they, they did in the third quarter. I mean, as much as like her final stat line against Baylor doesn't look great in the third quarter, she outscored Baylor by herself. She had 16, was 7 of 12 from the floor, 2 of 5 from 3. So it all came together there in the, that third quarter for her. Um, and they're going to have another, you know, week of practice under their belt going into the next round too. So I feel like she looks really good. I still feel like she probably feels like she's further ahead of where Paige was at this point last year. I feel like it really took like to that crazy elite game, elite eight game against NC state for Paige to kind of take over a game last year. And AC pretty much did that against Baylor in that, that third quarter in this one. So I don't know. It felt like the second half performance yesterday that she was like really back. Yeah. And even last year in that elite eight game, I don't think there's ever a point where Paige looked totally healthy. It was always a little off, even when she went off in that game. Whereas AZ's moving really well. She's cutting well. There doesn't seem to be any hesitation with her moves. She's playing good basketball and I think it's just a matter of time until those shots fall, but it's good that we see that she wasn't just relying on those shots. There were mid-range jumpers. There were drives to the basket. She's willing to pass. She's willing to defend. It's not like she's just a black hole when you put her out there where she's just going to launch these shots, whether they're going or not. But it feels like a matter of time until there's just a game where all these shots start to fall. And you think about it. She had 22 points and went three of 12 from three. What's going to happen when those shots start to fall? Yeah, exactly. And there's going to probably be a time that they're going to need them to fall. I don't know that it'll be next weekend, but if they get to Dallas, there's definitely going to be a time where they're going to need them to fall. But I think it's going to come and that could be the difference between like when the sequent team exits this year or do they win a national championship? Yeah, I think if we're talking national championship, AZ's got to be at the forefront of that. As good as Aaliyah Edwards is, and as much as she's really the engine of this team, AZ's shooting is what elevates their ceiling. I mean, we saw it against South Carolina, where UConn played, you know, not perfect, but about as well as I think they could have, and they still fell by four. You put AZ Foot in that mix, and she starts hitting a few threes, opens up the lane that starts to look like a much different matchup. There's a lot of ifs in that, but... A lot of ifs, but certainly a lot of 
potential. Also, aside, there's been a few where she's just totally airballed it or missed the basket, but so many of her shots are hitting the inside of the rim and bouncing in and out, or, you know, they just roll off and so many of her misses feel like they are so close to going in and almost find ways, new ways every time not to go in. So again, it really just feels like it's a matter of time. We kind of saw in the first half, or at least when she was healthy too, that there's a little bit of streakingness to her where maybe she won't take a ton of shots in the first half, or maybe she'll have trouble hitting some shots in the first half, but then that second half comes around and kind of against Baylor too. Then she'll really come alive. She's not a freshman in experience, but it almost feels like she's a freshman just because she hasn't played all that much basketball and she hasn't been healthy for all that much basketball. I kind of throw a lot of last season away because of her health, even in the tournament. So, I mean, the AZ that we saw last year in the tournament is nothing like the AZ that we even see now. I think this year's AZ is so much better, even though she still does have that rust. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think so much of last year she was tentative because of the injury or limited by the injury. And we've now that she's in what we've been able to see of her pretty healthy this year, it's much better than it was last year. And that's saying something because she was still, you know, a heck of a player last year, obviously. Right. It also just goes to show how she made 30 points become so routine early in the year because she can do so much and you take away her three point shot and she's still a really good basketball player. So Gino always says that she's the type of player that can take a close game and blow it into a blowout in the matter of five minutes. We (laughs) saw that a little bit against Baylor. And I still think there's another level where it can be even quicker and it can be that much more of a, a, it can roll so much faster into just blowing the game open. Or even if they're in a situation, pulling back from a deficit, cutting into that Mm -hmm. deficit because you trail by 10 points and that feels like a steep climb, but all of a sudden AZ hits threes on back-to-back possessions. You're only down four and you have all the momentum. So yeah, she's really the key to this team and well, not even her specifically, but that shot because I don't think I don't, it's hard to blame her if she goes through the rest of this year being the 25% three point shooter that she's been since returning. I don't think anyone's going to look and go, ah, well it's AZ's fault, but you know, you, you just hope that at some point that rust is gone and she's back to a hundred percent in all ways, physically, mentally, and in that shot. Yeah, exactly. I think, Hopefully she'll get there sometime this year. Um, and obviously UConn's chances are look a lot better if she does get there. But either way, I'm sure she'll figure it out at some point. So looking ahead to the next weekend, the Huskies are out to Seattle. I fly out tomorrow being Wednesday. So I will probably be in the air by the time you listen to this. The Huskies also head out tomorrow, I think. I saw that they have a send-off at Gamble at 1.30-ish or 1.45-ish. They will take on Ohio State, who snuck by UNC. My prediction was 
that close to being true <laughs> that we were going to see UNC in the Sweet 16. Alas, we will not. So now we'll get the dorky UHAS grudge match. What do you think about Ohio State's performance to this point in the tournament? And how do you like the matchup for UConn? Yeah, um, they've struggled a little bit so far in the tournament. They were down big, pretty big early to James Madison in the opening round. We were able to come back in that game and, and ended up winning it by, I think, at least 10 points, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, 14 points. Um, and then uh, really scraped by North Carolina. They won on a, a last-second shot from J.C. Sheldon there. So they haven't necessarily dominated their way to the Sweet 16 as much as they've kind of snuck into the Sweet 16. They've, they've survived and advanced. Yes. To the <laughs> fullest degree into the Sweet 16. Yeah. In terms of the matchup with UConn, I don't know. Like, I think some people disagree with me on this, but I think it's a pretty good matchup for UConn. And the thing that people that disagree with that statement will probably point to is that, like, the Ohio State, their defense is so much focused on the press, and we all know that UConn's had some trouble with turning over the ball this season. Um, so that could be problematic, but... Just the way I see it is one they've they've now got two ball handlers on the floor that can handle that with with Nika and AZ, so that's gonna help them in that situation. And also they've got five days to game plan for press that you know you're gonna see. So I, I'm not too worried about how much that will impact UConn. Do I think they'll probably turn turn over the ball a handful of times? Yeah, absolutely. But I still think that you know the matchup is pretty good. The thing with Ohio State's defense is outside of the press, like in the half court, it doesn't do a whole lot, especially in the paint. So it's kind of the type of game where you could see, you know, Aaliyah Edwards and Dorky Uhas just really being able to dominate once they get the ball into the the half court. They, on the season, are allowing their opponents to shoot 48.7% on twos. That's, like, in the bottom 50 teams in the country. Like, I just... <laughs> there's, there's not a whole lot to worry about with this team outside of the press and the fact that they occasionally decide to hit a bunch of threes, but they've been really struggling with their three-point shooting as of late. Yeah, th- those teams always worry me, though, because it's only one game that a team needs to get hot for. And we saw it against Baylor that UConn doesn't necessarily defend the three ball super well, or they're they're at least a little susceptible to teams getting hot from three. I will say, though, that five day prep time is an advantage because if you if you needed any more examples of why Gino is one of the best coaches there is. And I think the last two years we've it's been a bad narrative, but it's been out there that, oh, these injuries are showing that Gino's not that good of a coach. He needs those all Americans to be out there to be a good coach. And, you know, you don't get to a, fi- a sweet 16, 29 years in a row, just because you have good players. And we saw in that Baylor game specifically how well coached they were because everything that Baylor threw out them. Yeah. Maybe UConn struggled with it for a couple minutes, but then adjustments were made and that was over. Baylor hit six threes in the first quarter. They hit two in the second quarter and couldn't hit enough and get enough open looks 
to stay up with it. They looked out of sync on offense in early parts of that game. They eventually got it cruising. Having AZ foot out there helps, but we've just seen this team in way more of an X's and O's sense than last year play well and adjust well and handle different things thrown at them by the opponent without it totally derailing what they're trying to do. So yeah, there's going to be a good game plan. I think I look at this game and I imagine it's almost similar to the Baylor game where UConn's going to have moments where it struggles and it's probably going to have maybe one or two stretches where it turns the ball over on a few possessions in a row and Ohio state goes down and scores and either Ohio state goes ahead or UConn's lead, you know, starts to fall apart, but Ohio state's made its living off of these huge comebacks for the last month. It did it against Indiana. It did it against James Madison. Didn't do it necessarily as much against UNC, but it still had to come and go win, go and win that game if they fall behind by, you know, 10 isn't a huge lead, but like 15 points against UConn, UConn's not going to give up that lead. That game is going to be over. They're going to maybe try and put something together, but UConn's just too good. I think it's a close game, a competitive game for a lot of it. And then similar to the Baylor game, UConn kind of pulls away as Ohio State's either defense falls apart or their shots stop falling or any number of things happens, but there's a reason Ohio state's a three. And I think there's a reason that they've struggled in these first two games because they're just too inconsistent. And that press can cover up a lot of things, but I don't feel like pressure has ever actually been a huge issue with UConn's offense. A lot of its turnover problems are just unforced, like trying to throw it in the paint when there's three players guarding a Lee and it gets knocked away or, making a lazy pass out on the perimeter or just get stolen away or you step out of bounds. This team loves to travel. They travel all the time. (laughs) But outside of Princeton, when literally every single player who's ever played basketball for this team got injured, they haven't really had a ton of trouble with the press. So maybe if Nika gets into foul trouble or something, then it starts to get a little dicey. But Ali has shown that she can bring the ball up. Everyone on the floor, pretty much besides Dorka, you're going to be comfortable with them handling the ball to a degree to break a press. And as you mentioned, the coaching staff's going to have a week to dive into this defense. And I wouldn't be surprised if they find the kill switch on it and they know what to do and where to get the ball and how to execute in order to get it through that press. Because the other thing about a press is once you break it, it's wide open on the other end, which obviously we've seen with Ohio state. So I don't see them. It's always possible. I I can see a path to how UConn loses this game, but I don't think it's going to happen, especially. I don't know what later rounds might be like, but I can't imagine Ohio state is going to have more fans at this game than UConn, unless it's just every single fan in the building besides UConn fans are going to be rooting against UConn. But still, I, I think I like UConn's chances to win this by low double digits like a a 10 to 15 point victory i think would feel pretty right yeah i agree i think you know our house state's gonna give them their best shot they're probably gonna make some threes at some point in the game they're probably gonna force some turnovers but i just kind of inevitably think that uconn's ability to 
execute in the half court and to win the, the battle in, in the paint is going to to kind of take over and yeah it could be low to double digits it could also be worse like I think I mean we've seen this team lose by 33 to Iowa by 25 to Indiana like I wouldn't be shocked to see that happen either yeah no there's definitely a path to that where Ohio State's if Ohio State's press can't do anything to UConn doesn't disrupt UConn at all then that's when Ohio State's toast they have no chance if the press isn't turning UConn over it's not you know, at least gumming up their offense enough to cause problems. That's what Ohio State's hopes hinge on, because if that doesn't happen, they don't have the firepower anywhere to either keep up with UConn on offense or try and slow UConn down defensively. But as we've seen the last few years, the Sweet 16 is usually a tough game that's not necessarily super close. Last year, it being... Indiana, that wasn't a rollover win. UConn had to fight for it, but it there was never a moment in that game where you thought UConn was going to lose. Sweet 16 against Iowa in 2021, <laughs> they won that pretty easily. But again, I don't. It wasn't just you show up, the other team rolls over, and you move on. The ones that stick out to me are back those post Stewie years, UCLA one year. <laughs> That was a there was a moment in that game where I legitimately thought that they were going to lose a, a few moments where it felt like it was on the ropes. And then the next year, Duke, what I remember from that game is Katie Lou Samuelson hitting that shot and getting fouled and screaming. That was a moment that really stands out. And then I think she did the exact same thing the next game against Louisville. So <laughs> it, it's always a tough game, but it's usually a game that it would take a lot for UConn to get upset in. So possible. Yeah. I'm not saying that UConn's going to, I was comfortable saying that UConn was going to get to the sweet 16 without, you know, a major upset alert. And we saw that UConn had the second highest margin of victory of any one or two seed in the second round. The first was South Carolina, surprise, surprise. And even South Carolina had trouble in that game. It wasn't like that was a domination start to finish. So (laughs) if anything, this year is just kind of a good example that, Maybe there aren't as those, unless you're the elite of the elite teams, like 2016 and those Stewie years, you're not just going to roll over every single team you face in the NCAA tournament until the national championship or the final four. So to repeat myself for like a third time, it'll be (laughs) tough, but it's nothing that UConn can't handle. Yeah, exactly. So since... We're not going to podcast between games. Let's assume UConn wins. And again, they've made the fi- the sweet or man, there's too many different rounds, <laughs> especially where my brain is at currently. They've made the elite eight every year since 2008. There's a pretty good reason to believe that they're going to get back there. They, in that scenario would play the winner of Virginia tech and Tennessee, the one seed versus the four seed. Tennessee is blown through its competition largely because it's had the easiest path to the sweet 16 of, you know, any, I'd say non top two team in the country. If you think that's fair, a yeah. St. Louis team that should not have been a 13 seed and probably should have been closer to a 15 or a 16. And then a Toledo team that was a 12 seed beat a good Iowa state team, but I still don't think was anything special. 
So they rolled pretty heavily against two pretty easy games. And then Virginia Tech had a little more trouble, but they still got through. What do you think about that matchup? I know we talked about it a lot last week, but considering what we've seen from these two teams and how do you like both of their matchups with UConn? Yeah, so I think between those two, I know we just talked about how like easy Tennessee's path has been, but they also, I think, looked good getting there. There's plenty of teams that probably should have, you know, rolled over some of these teams that they've played and haven't. So I think it's it does still say something that Tennessee has made it look relatively easy so far. And then Virginia Tech, I thought their win over South Dakota State was a really good win. They They pretty much dominated that game I think it only ended up being like a 12 point margin victory at the end but I don't think that kind of fully captured like what that game was I think you know they were pretty much up start to finish and it never really felt like South Dakota State had a chance in that one um so I think both teams that have looked decent go so far though I'll say that Virginia Tech only scored 58 points against their 16 seed which is certainly concerning um yeah, that's tough <laughs> um so yeah i think those two teams are going to be an interesting matchup it's hard to predict who we'll see but i don't know i feel like the committee's kind of going to get their yukon tennessee elite eight that they they were hoping for that's kind of how i see that going i just don't know that virginia tech is quite going to have the answer for jordan horston and rakia jackson defensively i could be wrong there but I wouldn't be surprised to see UConn play Tennessee there. I think should that be the matchup? I mean, we've obviously seen that already this year, but it does feel like Tennessee is is kind of clicking at this point in the season. They you know they got that win over LSU in the SEC tournament, which was a big win. They came back from I think like seventeen down in that game to to finish it off. So I think a lot of things that we've seen Tennessee struggle with is they've had some of these bigger games that they've been in and then they've kind of folded down the stretch or not really been able to get it together and I think they've they've figured that piece out a little bit um so that could be an interesting matchup and then Virginia Tech I think like if you kind of could pick one of those teams you'd probably rather have Virginia Tech because I think they're very similar teams and that like they have Virginia Tech has Kitley in the post and, and then they have Georgia and Moore on the perimeter who's been shooting insane from three right now which is a big part of their recent success but the way UConn kind of matches up with them like one-on-one it's like they do the same things well but UConn probably does those things a little bit better I really think Aaliyah Edwards would eat Kitley's lunch yeah that's exactly what I think too so I think like if you're looking at UConn's easiest path for to the the final four you actually probably want chalk to hold but I don't I think Tennessee would be a fun game too Tennessee worries me just because if there is a script and this is not like the joke that like these games are like scripted and that it's all fake but like if there is like some divine script about the history of women's basketball that is that is being written (laughs) What is a better storyline than Tennessee proving its back by getting to the final four again for the first time since what? Oh, six, oh, seven, oh, eight, somewhere in there and beating UConn and ending UConn's final four streak to do it. 
I mean, the stories write themselves. If Tennessee gets through UConn, they might as well just go and win the national championship because like that is just, that's what concerns me. I think always what concerns me in these matchups are what would make a lot of sense for, uh, for the storylines, what's going to get turned into a movie. And can those things happen? (laughs) Nothing about Ohio state is going to get turned into a movie. I'm sorry, Ohio state, but it's not nothing about Baylor, nothing about Vermont, Tennessee though. That is a movie waiting to happen. That is as storybook as it could be. I mean, actually, like the the team Tennessee, no, doesn't worry me at all. You strip mm-hmm. their name off, have them trade jerseys with, you know, I'm blanking on every other school in the country. <laughs> if if they were wearing dark brown jerseys, I, this analogy is really falling apart. But take the Tennessee name off. Am I worried about them? No. I mean, to a degree, I think it would, again, it wouldn't be an easy game, but that would be, that would be really tough if Tennessee got back to the final four by ending UConn's final four streak. It would, I don't think it'll happen, but it would be really tough. <laughs> um, but I, I do kind of feel like that's the match. I don't know. I just have like a feeling that that's the matchup we're going to see. I don't have a great reason for it other than <laughs> just like, that's what my gut says. <laughs> And also to the point of Aaliyah eating Kitley's lunch, I that's not even a diss at Kitley. She just does that to every other big that she's played this oh. season. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I was shocked though that Kitley was one of the four finalists for the Naismith Award today. That was rather surprising. Yeah. Who else was it? Because I, I did not see yeah. that. Uh Aaliyah Boston, obviously, Caitlin really? Clark, obviously. Maddie oh. and Kitley. Happy wow. for Maddie. I don't necessarily think Kelly should have been on the list. <laughs> Look, w- when it's obvious that it's going to one of two people, I'm fine yeah. giving someone a little recognition by throwing them on the on the list. Yeah, I, we all know how much both of us hate LSU, but like the Angel Reese probably should have been on that list. <laughs> was that the one that she didn't make because of academics? No, though? yeah, it's not that one because that was okay. the one in one. So this one doesn't have that rule. So like. I don't know. It's like the numbers that she's averaged is insane. And I feel like it's kind of ridiculous that she's gotten like erased from the conversation off of like one not great game against South Carolina. Yeah, see, I'm I, I usually pride myself in trying to be objective and at least trying to take a fair stance on things, but in this case, no, I hate LSU. <laughs> they can, they see, can I think it's like I don't actually hate LSU, I just hate Kim Mulkey. So like <laughs> I still feel bad that Angel Reese isn't getting what she deserves. I still want them to lose because I hate Kim Mulkey, but honestly, should have got her credit. This isn't even a Kim Mulkey thing anymore. LSU just decided <laughs> that it was going to mess with me. So now we are mortal enemies and I will be as irrational as I please. <laughs> it's coming. Although with Indiana losing, the thought of a UConn LSU game in the final four. I might Maddie's not sleep. He's going to save us from it. It's going to happen. Please. Please. <laughs> I, I would have to go into Villanova's open locker room and just try and explain the situation and be like, Maddie, I know like this is probably a big thing for your career and like something that you've dreamed of your entire life, but I cannot express <laughs> to you how important to... <laughs> it is that you are here instead of LSU. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... If UConn lost to LSU in a Final Four, I think I would have to go into hiding. 
<laughs> Let's just not talk about it. I refuse to believe that they're going to be there. Okay. Well, it, if you want some good stats, I was writing about Baylor because, you know, you kind of just played Baylor. And LSU was a... I don't have the numbers written down, but they were pretty much a one or a two seed every year from like 2009 up until Mulkey left. And they only got to the final four, like three times in that span, which feels really low considering that I don't ever remember them being in Yukon's region. So yeah, they probably just... weren't because there was a stat in like the pregame notes that Yukon and Baylor have only met twice in the NCAA tournament. And one right. of them was that, 2021 game in the lead eight yeah that's that's kind of embarrassing if you can't get to more than a handful of final fours when you're consistently one of the best teams in the country so people more and more are saying that kim mulkey's a choke artist on top of being (laughs) just a bad human being well, we're gonna we're gonna ride with that because I will be so happy if Villanova makes the final four. That would be incredible. The vibes would. would be incredible. It would be There's... great. I would be so happy. <laughs> I would also feel very validated in my correct takes, but I would mostly just be very happy for Maddie Seacrest and Co. <laughs> that would be awesome. It really would. I mean, there's there's a non insignificant chance that three teams in the final four are either big east or old big east if louisville can get there and i'm kind of liking louisville's path so let's talk about the rest of the bracket and i think we need to start in the bottom left because that's where the chaos began so stanford the fraudinals that we have discussed for the last (laughs) couple of weeks lost in the second round to ole miss 54 to 49 stanford scored 49 points in their second round matchup ole miss takes them down their sweet 16 streak snaps. Tara Vanderveer makes a very bizarre comment after the game that their men's team would be thrilled to win to get to the second game in the NCAA tournament. Really weird swipe at the men's team. So the first time since 2009, a one seed has not gotten to the sweet 16. We'll get to the second part of that stat in a bit, but they lose to Ole Miss and I don't know if I thought it was going to be that early, but there's just no way that I could pick Stanford to go all that far in this tournament based on what we saw over this past month. Yeah, they had really struggled. I thought they were going to get it together beyond the first, you know, the second round. Like, I didn't think they were necessarily going to exit that early. And then also when I saw the region, I was kind of like, eh, they might go to the Final Four anyway, because who in this region is going to go to the Final Four? And we'll get to more of that discussion afterwards. But, yeah, I mean, obviously tons of credit to Ole Miss because their defense is really good. It took South Carolina to overtime a month or so ago, and then are able to to finish it off this time against Stanford, so that's huge for them. And then poor Cameron Brink appeared to be the only player on that Stanford team that actually cared about winning that game. And she looked like she was about ready to throw up on the sideline any minute. The thing that I don't get is how does Stanford go on a seven-week road trip during COVID, survive that, win the national championship, yet anytime they face adversity these past two years, just completely crumbled. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I think I feel like they lost some of their edge when they lost. I mean, 
last year they struggled too, but like when they lost Keanu Williams and then they lost the Hall twins and Anna Wilson, like I think as much as like we talk about this team being like Haley and Cam, I think those pieces were a lot more important than people maybe realized in terms of like the grit. But at the same time, how do you not develop any other contributors yeah. beyond those two? Yeah. Like that's, they have a, a huge bench. They have this is the best that Tara Vanderveer has ever recruited. I remember when it might have been when they got Lauren Betts that we were talking about. Oh, it's gonna be UConn, Stanford, and South Carolina yeah. until someone else decides otherwise. And now Stanford's not even going to the Sweet 16. It's just a remarkable failure by that program. My theory is that because of what they had to go through in COVID with that long road trip, they had no other choice but to be incredibly tough. They had no other choice but to get through that road trip. That makes you tough. And when you come off of that and now you no longer – it's no longer required to have that level of toughness. How can you ever recreate that? I mean, it was an external situation that was forced upon them. And I just don't think that they could ever themselves get their, get to a level of toughness that even compared to that. So in a weird way, the toughness that they built during that long road trip ended up hurting them in the long term. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's it. It's it's weird because of the talent they have. Like they should be better than they were. And I think like when we get to the other one, like I want to be careful about like saying that like you know the failure of the one seed because I think we're also seeing like a shift in women's basketball. And like it is really just like it's closer. Like the two to thirty gap has shrunk so much, and that's why you're seeing a team like Ole Miss move forward. But at the same time, the talent that Stanford has makes it feel like a little bit of a different situation with them, where it's like they did really underperform because like this team has the talent that it should be kind of hanging out with like South Carolina and UConn and not maybe in this larger discussion of like how close everyone else is. Right. And like the, how much closer is everyone else? Just look at UConn. Baylor was a lot better than a lot of seven seeds that we've seen mm-hmm. seven or like those, those seven through 10 seeds that we've seen at UConn so much the last couple of years that team was a lot better than a lot of those teams that have come to stores in the past, but it, it was never an upset threat for UConn. It was a tougher game, but it was still a 19 point win and a 19 point wins a 19 point win. Really? No matter how you, you can't say that, Oh, UConn, you know, snuck away with that at the end when it's yeah. 19 points, if it was right. 10 points. Oh yeah. That's, that's easy to say, but 19 is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I think, yeah, UConn's a two seed, but like in reality, like UConn's probably the second best team in this bracket. So it's like a it's a weird discussion because it's like we're gonna talk about these other teams that are seated ahead of UConn, but like in reality, UConn's the second best team in this bracket. Yeah, well, clearly, <laughs> because you know, to stick with the one seed topic, and we can come back to the bottom left of the bracket in a second, but two one seeds have not failed to make the round of 32 since 1998 until Indiana decided to bid everyone adieu and fall to Miami at home last night as the UConn game was happening. A 70 to 68 win for Miami, a last second shot. There have been a lot of last second shots in this tournament and it's been very fun. Yeah, it's been an incredibly fun tournament so far, but yeah, I mean, 
I was never like full on the Indiana train, clearly, because I've been talking at length about how Villanova was going to go to the Final Four before Indiana lost. Um, so I did think they were beatable, but I, I still didn't expect it to happen in the second round, nonetheless, by this Miami team that has really struggled on offense for a lot of the season. Yeah, even the first round game, they squeaked out of that with a win over Oklahoma State. It's not even like they comfortably got through that game and then were ready to play Indiana. That was a one-point game against Oklahoma State. And a big comeback for them. They were down big to Oklahoma State and then turned it around to win it. Yeah, so the thing that really gets me about that Indiana game is, yeah, they they tied it with that three-pointer. But on the play before that, they gave it to Grace Berger, who just took one of the worst shots you will ever see to keep her team in the game. And that was out of a timeout. So once that happened, I really kind of felt like, okay, they're not really doing much here. Yeah, and like Mackenzie Holmes didn't get the ball like down the stretch. Like, why aren't you going to your player that is like a national player of the year candidate? down the stretch i I don't get it (laughs) yeah the amazing thing the stat that i saw from a friend of the program alexa philippu at espn is that indiana has regressed one round back of the tournament each of the last three years they made it to the elite (laughs) eight in the bubble they made it to the sweet 16 last year where they lost to yukon and they only got to the second round this year and their teams have gotten significantly better each season beyond that for like it's been an inverse of how good their team's been the worst the better their team's been the worst they've done in the ncaa tournament yeah it's very strange i don't know like what it is honestly i think it might be the big 10 i don't think the big 10 does a great job of preparing teams for the ncaa tournament because they all play this style of basketball that involves no defense and then they get to the tournament and have to play teams that play defense and they like don't know what to do yeah, I think that's what happens, honestly. Yeah, that's a pretty good theory, especially they cruise through the Big Ten. And this is something that happens a lot of years where the best team in the Big Ten usually struggles. Right. Or maybe if not the best team, a lot of the middle class in the tournament. Yeah, and I think I mean, we're going to go back to Iowa and stuff in a minute, but I think we're kind of seeing it. Like, and Maryland hasn't really had to play one yet. Michigan got pummeled by LSU. You got an Indiana team that's out. You got an Iowa team that's already struggled. It's, I, just, I don't think it prepares them well for the tournament. Yeah. Let's go to Iowa because I know we're never short on Iowa takes on this pod. <laughs> we got the Georgia-Iowa matchup that we were hoping for and Georgia was in a position to win the game and then it was like a controlled demolition. Step by step, they just collapsed at every possible moment. At every at every support, it just caved in on them. Yeah, it was disappointing. It was more that Georgia lost the game than like Iowa won the game. So they just threw the ball away in those last couple possessions and then in typical Coach Abe fashion followed it up with some excessive fouls on the end, even when it was over, to, to make the margin look wider than it was, but Yeah, just a complete collapse down the stretch from Georgia. So, looking at the rest of the region, 
Iowa's into the Sweet 16 against Colorado, who upset Duke decently comfortably. Stunner, Duke struggled to score points. Who could have seen that one coming? Then on the other side, it is eight-seed Ole Miss and five-seed Louisville. Where does Iowa get knocked out? Yeah. It's so, it's hard like not they, to see them go into the the final yeah. four, right? Right. Like, they should make the final four right now. At this point, I think if they don't make the final four, it's kind of like, what are you doing? But I still don't know that they're going to make the final four. <laughs> like, that, that game against Georgia didn't really inspire any confidence because they were... Georgia making three horrendous decisions away from like getting bounced at home again. I would love to believe you. I think the hope is Louisville, right? Yeah. Or would it be Ole Miss and its defense? I think I see a path for any of the teams. I think Louisville is the best hope. I think when you look at Colorado, Colorado and Georgia are actually very similar teams. Um, so that one has potential to be interesting. I just, it's like a, the Colorado numbers, I think, are actually, like, a little bit better and that, like, it should be, like, it's a similar type of game, but I think the thing that's, like, missing is, like, just, like, the intangible factor that Diamond Battles has in terms of, like, she just, like, is going to thrive on, like, wanting to shut down Caitlin Clark. That's what she lives for. Interesting. Uh, but I don't know that Colorado has that edge and i haven't watched enough colorado i couldn't be wrong there but i do kind of think like it's an interesting game numbers wise and that it could be similar but i don't necessarily feel as good about them creating such a a harder time for iowa as georgia did but i think yeah the real hope is louisville and as down as we've all been on louisville this season it kind of feels like jeff falls might mess around and take this team to a final four I was going to say, like, without even disrespecting any of the other coaches in the region, besides Lisa Bluter, who this is directed at, Jeff Walls <laughs> is comfortably the best coach in that that's left. And Coach Yo is really good. I, I, I couldn't even tell you who Colorado's coach is, so I, I couldn't disrespect them even if I chose to, which I wouldn't. They seem like a perfectly fine person. But my prediction for this region was that Texas was going to get to the final four because they were going to be a team that finally figured it out that had more talent than the, what they had showed. And it kind of feels like that actually might be Louisville. Louisville should not have been as bad as they've been this year. And maybe they didn't see it. We didn't see it against Drake who a good mid-major team, but I think we started to see it against Texas. That's a decisive win. They beat Texas by a larger margin than UConn beat Baylor 22 points. So, and they I, scored 73 points against Texas. That's what yeah. stood out to me about that game. Not so much that Texas only scored 50, because, like, yeah, Louisville's defense is good. Um, but that they scored 73 points against Texas it was impressive. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really intrigued by Louisville. They don't have an easy Sweet 16 matchup, but that could be, they could be a real s- sneaky team to get into the final four here. Yeah, and look, I'm like I can't on principle put Iowa there, so I'm like now going to just be a football Louisville fan for the next two games. It's fine. <laughs> this is a pro Jeff Walls podcast. You like Jeff Walls, right? I'm I'm saying yes, that off my Jeff own volition. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> saying that off my own volition without checking with you, but pro Jeff Walls podcast. And I still think it's fair to say that Jeff Walls has the formula down on how to get teams to the final four, even if he doesn't even have the cookbook for how to get a national championship. 
but he can get teams to the final four. Yeah, and I think the other piece of this is that like Haley Van Leaf has been playing at a different level for them the last month or so, and you've got Caitlin Clark, but you also have Haley in this bracket now, so I feel like it's going to have to be one of those that comes out. The Viking Princess, as Diana Taurasi calls her. <laughs> I think because I kind of, parades. of like, would like that as an Elite Eight matchup. It would be fun to kind of see the two of them go at it. Uh, as someone who's going to be in Seattle, I agree. I don't know if I'm going to end up going to those Sweet 16 matchups just because those are the days that are UConn's practice days. So those are very heavy work days, <laughs> as uh, Megan can attest to. But that Elite Eight game, if it's Iowa-Louisville, I will specifically carve time out of my day to go watch that. Yeah, that could be fun. I would also be plenty content to watch Iowa get bounced by Colorado and just crazy. No one definitely had them in the Elite Eight run for Colorado. I'm fine with that too. But yeah, it could I be will, interesting. If Iowa's losing, I will make time to go watch that. <laughs> I'll send you selfies of Caitlin Clark walking off the court. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note... It is nine o'clock as we're recording this. I leave out of Boston for Seattle in, how does math work? 14 hours. <laughs> and I have not packed a single thing. So I really need to go do that. But next time we record. We might be in Dallas. There's a chance. Possibly. There's a chance. Depending on timing and everything. But next time we record. I realized this the other day. Either this is the last episode of the regular season or the next week is the, well, yeah. we recorded in between. Of, of our weekly episodes, the championship special is different for the sake of this, of this, if they get there. But yeah, it's coming quick. Yeah. Anyways, any last thoughts? Because Zoom's about to kick us out. <laughs> no, I think we're good. All right. That'll do it from us. Thanks for listening.